should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to Little Friday. Yes, I made it here. I know it sounds really bad that... Uh, little Friday is this exciting for me. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm Michelle Miel, your host. Jax, our producer, is in studio. Jax, are you excited for a little Friday? I am equally as, as excited, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you, you actually still have to work on the weekends, but I don't know, you know, something happens, like I just get so excited. Not that I don't work on Fridays, by the way, people. I, I do work on Fridays, but uh, I don't know, it just makes you feel good that it's the weekend's right around the corner, right? Yeah, Fridays are my day off, so this is my this is my f- Friday. Oh, today, yes, yeah. See, if little little sense. little Friday. So enjoy yourself and just start to per, you know preparing for the weekend. Whatever you have to do, whether it's work around the house or doing something incredible, visiting family. Um, I am so exhausted. I feel like you know this year has just. <laughs> It's just flown by. I mean, it's already August. Um, I think I've mentioned it here on the show as well. For my volunteer work, I serve as a board member for San Francisco Pride. It's an interesting time because uh, elections is right around the corner. So we're, we're, we've got seven open seats. Um, and uh, I didn't know that community activism could actually be uh, considered politics. Did you know this, Jax? I mean, when you're saying open seats, I'm thinking politics. But no, I didn't really ever see it that way. Oh, there's so much, you know, uh, politics behind it. And I feel like I I feel like a politician. I feel dirty. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I know that people who tune into Progressive Voices know exactly what I'm talking about. But, you know, here uh, the radio program actually is my it's like my sanctuary. It's my safe place. This is where I have a lot of fun. So let's. Just get the party started. Don't ever become a politician, Jax. Was really not in my plan. <laughs> good, good. Just stay here with us. Just stay in this safe place right here in this studio and be our producer forever. All right. Let's get to Little Friday's program and uh, on here with, with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Our guest today is Eric Sherman. He is the author of Out at Home, the true story of Glenn Burke. Glenn Burke being uh, considered the first openly gay baseball player who came out. He came out after retirement. And so here's the interview. Enjoy. Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Michelle. I think it's a it's a perfect show, you know. We just interviewed Sean Conroy, who, you know, the news organizations and even the MLB historian himself is saying that Sean is the very first openly 
gay professional baseball player who's on an active roster. Um, but at the same time, you can't help but take that title and think about our very own Glenn Burke, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, Glenn, Glenn, of course, was was from your part, part of the country. Uh, he grew up in Berkeley, California, um, and he played in the major leagues back in the late 70s and tried to make it into the 80s, um, but was basically blackballed from from the sport at yeah. that point. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll get we'll get into that. But first, you know, I want to talk about you and how did you meet Glenn and end up writing his book? Well, I I consider myself really for, fortunate. I mean, you know, we're going back uh 21 years, uh back to 1994, and I had been a free freelance writer at that point for about 15 years, and I had heard about Glenn's story um through Inside Sports. Um, that was a publication very much like Sports Illustrated uh, back in the 80s. And, and I remember reading about Glenn and, um, and, um, and remembering how, um, you know, truly amazing the story was. Um, can you still see me okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I dropped off the screen for a second. So um, with, with Inside Sports... Um, they did an expose actually written by Glenn Burke's lover, um, a man named Michael Smith, uh, who was actually Glenn's par partner, uh, for several, several years. And, um, and basically, um, it, it revealed that, that Glenn had lead, had led this secret life. Uh, in fact, the title of the magazine article was called, uh, the gay Dodger. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought that was a fascinating story, um, you know, how how this wasn't getting even more publicity than it all, all already was uh, really surprised me. Um, and then Glenn went on the Today Show uh, with Brian Gumbel and, um, and really for the first time came out publicly on his own back in 1982 and re revealed the fact that he was the first major league player uh, to, to come out. Now, um, the Dodger players knew that he was gay. Uh, the Oakland A's players knew that he was gay, but he hadn't come, he hadn't made that news public until 1982. Now, in the book, and uh, we're going to come back to that article, by the way. I do want to talk about that article. There's so much to talk about uh, when it comes to Glenn Burke's story, and that's what we're trying to do here is celebrate his story, celebrate him and, you know, kind of his contributions to not just the LGBTQ gay liberation movement, but to sports, really, as well. Um, you know, you mentioned he, he grew up in the Bay Area. He, you know, was this uh, kind of verbal guy. He naturally had this big build, and so a lot of people were afraid of him, and people didn't think that he was gay when he was playing, uh, you know, baseball. But he also didn't try to hide the fact that he was gay. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, the Dodgers knew, the players knew in some ways, some of his teammates, his closest friends knew. Uh, but what about his relationship with management? Because I think that, you know, that really points out the discrimination that he faced as an athlete. Yeah. Um, you know, so Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Burke was a five-tool player. Um, he was referred to as Jim Gilliam, one of the coaches of the Dodgers, as potentially the next Willie Mays. I mean, he had that 
kind of five tool um, talent, you know, throwing, hitting, um, he, he, you know, he, he was very, very fast. So, um, but the Dodgers at the time, you know, they were the first team to draw 3 million fans um, back in the 70s. Uh, no one was even close. The Dodgers had a pristine image, um, which they wanted to maintain. And even though Glenn had all this ta talent, they really believed that, um, that having a gay center fielder probably wasn't in their best interests at that time. Um, so uh, they offered him money um, to get married. And Glenn's response to that was, uh, you mean to a woman? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, and uh, apparently the offer was made by Al Campanis, who was the general manager at the time. And so obviously Glenn you know, didn't think that was a very good idea, didn't think it would be very fair to the woman that he would marry. And it was a significant sum of money, um, you know, something like $60,000, wow. uh, which pretty much matched Glenn's salary at the time. So can you imagine getting double your salary uh, just to get married? Um, and, you know, the Dodger man man management claimed, well, you know, this is something that we do for our players. We we want to, you know, give off a, you know, a real family type of image here with the Dodgers, and and we like our players to get married, and and so Glenn um, asked around, and no other player was offered money to get married. So it it was kind of a situation where um, the Dodgers felt that they needed to move Glenn, and they did to the Oakland A's um, for an aging Bill Billy North. Um, and, um, there's a lot of outrage in that Dodger clubhouse. A lot of, um, Glenn's teammates like Glenn and didn't like seeing him go. Right, right. Including Dusty Baker, who, as we know here in the Bay Area, you know, managed the, uh, the Giants, the San Francisco Giants. And, uh, I want to get to their relationship in just a bit, but backing up to Dodgers management, you know, in the book, you also talk about uh, Glenn's relationship with Tommy Lasorda's son, Spunky, who was more of an effeminate gay, was out. And there were some rumors that, you know, that Tommy didn't like that he had this relationship with his gay son. Well, right. Yeah. And that's what Glenn claimed, uh, that, uh, you know, they, they were very, very close. Um, Glenn wouldn't get into uh, whether or not uh, there was a relationship there other than a friendship, um, said it was nobody's business. Uh, but they did go around town um, and, you know, around L.A. and and they were good friends. And, and you know, the thing that really I that I got from Glenn's fa family, particularly his sister, uh, Luther Burke, um, was that Glenn, Glenn was really close with Tommy Lasorda. Uh, when he first came up, you know, they were both very gregarious, outspoken people. They both liked to joke around a lot. And, um, but it was only after um, the organization realized that Glenn, Glenn was gay, that's when the relationship started to go sour. Um, so, but again, I mean, you know, a very different time in our society. Um, and um, so right. uh, the Dodgers moved, moved him. Right, right. Let's talk about his friendship with Dusty Baker. I mean, you know, even 
um, when he got sick, you know, he mentions, or at least in the book, it's mentioned that, you know, Dusty was really one of the guys that he really looked up to who he considered a good friend, right? Yeah, uh, Dusty Baker was Glenn Burke's best friend on the team. Um, When Glenn was sick, um, you know, Dusty, um, you you know, would go and see Glenn. Um, Dusty um, is a terrific human being. I've, I've had the honor and pleasure of meeting with and talking with Dusty Baker on several occasions. Um, and um, he would refer to Glenn as his son, still does. Uh, I mean, if you ever had Dusty on on your show, he would say, yeah, Glenn was my son. And, um, you know, af- after Dusty found out that Glenn was gay, you know, D- Dusty kept introducing Glenn to these beautiful women. Mm-hmm. And Glenn would always be like, oh, well, you know, she's not so attractive and, and you know, she's not really my type. And Dusty's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, um, you know, one, once Dusty fa- found out, um, he was completely cool with it. And so I often get asked, uh, Michelle, um, you know, are, are there any big league managers today or in recent memory, you know, that, that would have been able to... Um, manager or, you know, coach an openly gay player, and certainly Dusty would have been one of them. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. I want to go back to the A's. So we talked about a little bit that he got traded to the Oakland A's. And, you know, one would think, I mean, he's coming home. He's in the Bay Area during the time, I guess. Yeah, the gay liberation movement was just starting. Maybe he could have found some support outside of baseball if he kept going. But he ended up retiring because of a comment that management had made. And and that comment was that they didn't want a gay person playing on their team, right? Well, 
what happened with with the Oakland A's? He was going to the worst team in baseball. Um, in fact, the nickname for the Oakland A's back in 1980, you know, 1979, 1980, and in that time they were called the Triple A's um, after the min minor league uh, system. Uh, they would draw 5,000 fans a game. Uh, so it was a very depressing place to play, especially after playing under the spotlight of Hollywood um, and nightly sellouts at Dodger Stadium. So um, he was happy to go home uh, and he was happy to be in the Bay Area in some respects. But in other respects, um, it was a very depressing team to play for. Now, in 1980, the Oakland A's hired Billy Martin. Um, you know, Martin, of course, had managed the Yankees a couple of times. And so, so now he was back in the Bay Area. And all of a sudden, the A's um, had a lot of hope. You know, they had young players in their system like Tony Armas and Ricky Henderson and some really good young pitching. And uh, Billy Ball was in town. And so Glenn was actually re reinvigorated. I mean, he, he was very excited to play for the A's. So uh, spring training 1980, uh, Billy Martin is going around, as most man managers do, and he's introducing the players and the coaches. I think it was the first or second day of spring training camp. And Billy gets to Glenn Burke, and he goes, um, and this is Glenn Burke. He's a faggot. And so it, it created, needless to say, a very difficult work environment um, for Glenn. And it wasn't soon there, thereafter uh, he was sent to the minor leagues to rehab an injury, and he was never call, called up. And, and you, you know, you, you really have to understand exactly how bad the Oakland A's were, were then. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Glenn, Glenn Burke would have been a no-brainer starter every night. Um, but, you know, after the Dodgers moved him, the A's just tried to bury him and um, and at a point, Glenn just stopped, yeah. you know, fighting and, and, and he retired. I think he was 26. Yeah. And in reading his, you know, the book and hearing Glenn's story, it's so frustrating. It makes me so sad. I live a different time, right? I live a time in which being out and here in San Francisco, you know, um, I'm thriving as a professional. And it's really hard to believe that you know, a team like the Dodgers uh, would do that to someone who was considered a top prospect uh, in terms of being, like you said, probably could have been the next Willie Mays. I want to go back to that article that you talked about, um, the Gay Dodger, you know, that was written by uh, Glenn's partner, Michael Smith. I mean, I thought that that was like double harm. Like, not only was he harmed as a professional, you know, by his bosses and you know, but he was also harmed by his partner who pretty much outed him. And I believe that not everything in that article Glenn agreed with, right? Um, I think he agreed with a lot of what was in there, but I, I completely agree with you that um, uh, he did not necessarily want that to come out. And my understanding was that Glenn didn't see any of that money. Um so, but, you know, my, Michael Smith was Glenn's partner. So, you know, they, they shared an apartment and I know that a lot of the money was spent on furniture and stuff like that. Um, but, um, 
yeah, that was not with Glenn's permission, from what I understand. And that uh, didn't go over great with Glenn. Um, but Glenn was out of the game. And, and you know, I, I, I don't think he was upset about it. But I think Glenn would have preferred um, it to come out a little bit differently. Um, and then, of course, soon, soon thereafter, he went on the Today Show with Brian Gumbel. And, um, and I know that was something that Glenn enjoyed doing. And it, you know, at the end, I think he accepted the article because yeah. Michael wanted that to, he wanted him to come out so that it would be a part of uh, or contribute to the gay liberation movement, in which, um, in hindsight, it really did. I mean, now, you know, every year we, we celebrate and we talk about Glenn Burke and more and more athletes are coming out. And like I started off with the show today, we have an openly gay pro baseball player um, who's, who's, who's playing and who's supported by management and his teammates. Um, you know, the most remarkable thing that I pulled from the book would be toward the end, although it was, it was really sad. Glenn, uh, gets sick, obviously he dies from, from AIDS, from what we know. Um, but the Oakland A's and, uh, a woman named Pamela, you know, they end up helping him at the end. They, they redeem themselves a little bit there. They most certainly did. Um, Pamela Pitts, um, who is the longest-running female executive in baseball history, um, she's still with the Oakland A's after all these years. I think she began back when Billy Martin started, actually. And um, uh, she's just a phenomenal human being, a real diamond in the rough, um, but just a heart of gold. And she would sit with Glenn uh, several nights a week, at the Welcome Home restaurant in the Castro. I don't know if the Welcome Home is still there there or not. Um, but it's not, but. It, it's not? No. Okay. I know, sad. It's a changed, new, different, you know, Castro in San Francisco altogether. But go I'm ahead. I'm <laughs> sure. I, I visited there, uh, I guess, 20, 20 years ago. And um, so, yeah, um, she, it wasn't just, you know, the meal money. And making sure that Glenn was eating, um, you know, because he was on the streets for a while. He was homeless. And uh, before he he moved in with his sister, Lutha, and um, she would sit and talk to Glenn and, and really ma- make sure that he was getting um, the nutrition and the health care that he needed um, as much as she could con- convince him to go go get it. Uh, Glenn was into self-medication a lot of the times. Um, he was involved in a car accident, and his health really deteriorated, deteriorated at, after that. Um, and then, um, you, you know, contracting HIV and then AIDS. Um, when he was in prison, um, you know, he started stealing and uh, you know anything for survival. Um, and she just really took very good care of him. Um, and the A's did redeem themselves. Um, and um, uh, that was a great thing that they did at the end of his life. Now in you know, 2015 and years after his death, um, have any of the sports teams like the Dodgers or the A's, uh, I don't know if there's any you know, commemoration or something that they do that that they could, you know, possibly do for Glenn Burke to elevate and uh, expose his story. Um, do you know if anything has been done for him? Yeah. Uh, the Oakland A's earlier this year had a Glenn Burke night, I believe. Um, 
uh, and that was put together by by Pam. Um, and I believe that was in May or early June. Um, Major League Baseball uh, at last year's All Star Game um, dedicated um, an award to Glenn Burke uh, uh, posthumously, uh, and they flew his sister Lutha and Lutha, one of Lutha's daughters uh, to, to the All-Star Game, and Commissioner Bud Selig um, uh, made a, a very nice speech, introduction, and of course appointed Billy Bean um, to the role of um, Ambassador of Inclusion uh, for Major League Baseball. So what Billy Bean does, um, and this is not the general manager, of the A's. Uh, Billy Bean was the second made major league uh, baseball player to reveal his homosexuality um, again after his playing career right. had, had ended. So Billy go, goes around to each of the 30 major league teams each year uh, starting last summer and um, and talks about inclusion um, and really helping to pave the way um, for uh, hom homosexuals to be open uh, in the major league environment. But still no gay pro uh, professional player out in the MLB, so hoping that that uh, will happen soon. What do you think? I predicted, um, I, I was interviewed by MSNBC at la during last year's All-Star break uh, a after the um, news that Major League Baseball was going to honor Glenn. And I predicted that within a year that you'd have a professional baseball player, an active one, come out. So you've had that with Mr. Conroy. Sean and, Conroy, that's right. That's right. right. Last question uh, for you, Eric, and uh, just kind of your thoughts. Or I'm sorry, did I? Did were you going to wrap something up about MLB? No, I, I, I was just going to say that I believe it'll happen in the major leagues. Um, you know, within the next um, two, two or three years as well. Yeah, I think so too. Um, my last question for you is to wrap up and, you know, I enjoyed talking to you about Glenn Burke. And by the way, thank you so much for completing the book. I know that um, you had mentioned in the book that was a promise you made to Glenn because he actually didn't live um, long enough for the book to come out, right? Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't finish my earlier thought. Um, there were 17 other movie companies and no, I'm sorry, 17 other writers uh, and four movie companies that were interested in Glenn's story at the time. And I sent a book proposal off to Pamela Pitts, who showed it to Glenn. And out of all the proposals that he, he had received, he liked my, mine the best. Um, so we had a publisher, uh, Taylor, Taylor Publishing out of Texas. They're no longer. And they said that they would publish the book. And then the Major League Baseball strike hit. At the end of the 94 season, beginning of 95, and something that never happens, uh, the publisher dropped the project um, after Glenn and I were well into it. And um, so I promised Glenn, literally, I mean, he had maybe a month to live, that I said to him, don't worry, um, at my own expense, I'll make sure that this book is published. Um, so I, I made sure... And um, it was uh, a, a self-publishing effort. Um, and all these years later, uh, this spring, um, Penguin Publishing 
um, who I've written, uh, who I wrote another book with, uh, they decide to reissue it, you know, to republish it, and uh, with a forward from Billy Bean, and I wrote in a very lengthy afterward. Um, so, um, yeah. yeah. No, I, I really do appreciate that. I mean, honestly, and I think that younger people appreciate your book and also sports enthusiasts. I mean, uh, Glenn Burke's story is one of many baseball stories, um, but, you know, he just happens to be a, a gay American baseball player. Uh, so I also appreciated how you included, you know, his gay life in there and you're very um, real about the things that he went through because as, a, you know, a gay fan, um, those are things that I can relate to. So I really, really, really thank you for, for writing that book. So just to, again, to finish up my thought, my last question, I promise you, and I'm going to let you go. Um, you know, what do you think Glenn would think of, you know, uh, today, kind of the time that we're living in and everything that's happening? Um, you know, what if he was here with, with us today? Like, what, what do you think he would be feeling? He would be absolutely shocked at how Major League Baseball uh, honored him um, in a in a pregame All-Star game um, festivity. Um, that he would be honored like he was. Um, he would be absolutely shocked that Jason Collins uh, adorned the cover of Sports Illustrated, um, that Michael Sam uh, has been able to speak so openly. Um, he would be absolutely shocked, uh, and happily so. And uh, I pray that wherever Glenn is today, that he is smiling and he's happy about um, how society has progressed, not just in sports, but in the military, um, in the courts. Um, and um, I, I, I just think he'd be thrilled about everything. And on that note, I'm going to let you go. Eric, thank you so much for joining us here on this uh, program. Well, thank you so much for having me, uh, Michelle. I've really enjoyed it. Don't go away. When we come back, we speak to director Annalise Ophelian, who is the director of Major, a biographical documentary about Miss Major, a trans activist and a huge leader in the LGBT rights movement. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Hey. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do. 
especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Miss Major Griffin Gracie, or better known as just Miss Major, is a trans activist and community leader in the fight for equal rights, especially transgender rights. She's the executive director of the Transgender Gender Variant Intersex Justice Project, which supports trans people in prison. Miss Major has been involved in the movement for over 40 years. She was not only involved in the Stonewall riots, but was actually there and participated. She's headed organizations for HIV AIDS support, just an incredible, incredible hero. And, you know, when I talk about leaders like this who are still with us today, it always makes me so emotional. We're so lucky to have people like Miss Major, and that would be the reason why so many just refer to her as mama in the community. Uh, you know, there's a bio, there's a biographical do- documentary being produced right now called Major, and we have the director here with us on the phone, Annalise Ophelian. Before we get to Annalise, let's play the trailer very quickly. We don't get chance. We don't get chance to tell our stories uh, as transgender women. It's gotten better lately, but the people who are asking them are too selective. You know what I mean? And it's like, no, well, she's okay, but she isn't. How do you know she isn't? You haven't talked to her. Don't make a judgment by what you see. That don't, you know, that don't cut it, you know? I don't know why I'm still here. I guess I still have stuff to complain about, bitch about, and try to change, you know, as much as humanly possible, and wake people up to who my community is. of critical resistance. Uh, When I first heard you speak there, I said, she is our leader. She is showing us how to do this work. So thank you so much. We have to work with the girls who are doing the hooking, who are out at two and three in the morning, you know, who don't feel as if they have a choice. Recently, people haven't really talked about how transgender folks and gender nonconforming people end up in such high numbers in prison and jail. And I think that conversation is growing in large part thanks to Miss Major. I've seen her sit up there and buy money orders and put monies on people's books, go see them. I'm like, you don't even know these people. Yes, I do. They're trans and they're in jail. That's enough. It was Miss Major who taught me to center my sisters in my work. She has always centered us, those of us most forgotten by LGBT movement leaders. For decades. For decades, Miss Major, with little resources, no pay or accolades, has taken care of us, has taken care of our sisters behind bars, our sisters working the streets, our sisters searching for mothers. She is the blueprint for our liberation and has ensured that the path that I walk on, the path that we walk on, is less rocky because of her work, because she exists. Having all of y'all here gives me hope. 
that tomorrow it don't have to be this way. Tomorrow my younger girls can go out, be who they need to be freely. Freely. That's what happens. Annalise, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited for this documentary. It's, uh, you know, it should happen like today. <laughs> I, wanna, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I want to you know, start with like the format. And uh, I know that it's a biographical documentary. So does it follow uh, Miss Major today or do we get a glimpse of, you know, going back in time and, and just going through the decades, as you mentioned in the in the trailer of work? You bet. I mean, we definitely are taking a look at Miss Major's life and campaigns in a historical context. Um, there's so much amazing uh, history that Miss Major's life has intersected with, from her experience in New York in the 1960s, certainly her participation in the Stonewall Uprising. Uh, Miss Major was actually politicized when she was incarcerated at Dannemora by Frank Big Black Smith, one of the organizers of the Attica Uprising. And she was then sent to Attica just months after the uprising. Um, she's been instrumental in the way HIV outreach has worked with trans women of color in particular, and then has spent the last decade advocating for trans women of color behind bars in California and beyond. So there's so much that we learn about social justice history, about our liberation collectively as LGBT communities through Ms. Major's work. It sounds, I mean, it, I, I couldn't possibly list all of her <laughs> work in my very short intro. Um, so, you know, I want to go back to, uh, was there anything, you know, maybe surprising or, or something that you didn't know about Miss Major that you uncovered uh, while working on this documentary so far? I wonder if we get a glimpse of Miss Major, you know, growing up or as a youth or, you know, was she always, you know, that leader that was just burning inside as like a 15-year-old? You know, it's such a, it's a, this is a really compelling question. And any um, biographical documentarian Really, you know, you want to embark on telling someone's life story from a place of rich, available information. And so starting out, we really wanted to be able to share the story of Ms. Major's youth and quickly came up against this um, you know, sort of terrible impediment, which is that early in Major's 20s, her sister, who sadly um, later committed suicide, burned all of Miss Major's family's photos and all of the pictures Major sent back home from New York in the 60s from her young life. Mm. So we've sadly been embarking on this biographical documentary without any real photo images and very, very sparse pictures of Miss Major, um, really until the 1980s. And one of the ways that we've kind of hoped to, to um, remedy that is through use of illustration and animation. And there's a wonderful illustrator out of Ohio, Ripley Bennett, who's been um, working along with Miss Major as a sort of art director, creating these images um, of Miss Major's use of the Stonewall Inn in a way that we think is going to be culturally responsive of what the, the patronage of that bar actually looked like, um, instead of the very whitewashed kind of history that we're given in the media today. But all of it speaks, I think, also to who has the luxury of keeping photo albums, who has the luxury of sort of maintaining a personal record, uh, and what survival and being uprooted and being on the move does to one's capacity to actually keep lots and lots of records. 
Um, and so very often with communities um, that are working with more fundamental survival needs, we don't have the kind of luxury of having lots and lots of visual information. Mm-hmm. And we're helping to remedy that in some kind of creative ways with this film but also in the making of the film itself. So we've got over 550 pages of transcript of interviews, not just with Ms. Major, but with all of these community members who she's influenced and touched. And we're donating those transcripts to both GLBT historical societies and to African American archives and historical societies around the country as a way of really getting trans women, particularly trans women of colors, oral histories and stories, much more as a part of the public record. So, so, so incredible. It just sounds like so much uh, is you know being poured into this documentary in, in terms of effort, and I, I love it. It's an inc- uh, interesting time right now when we talk about media and um, you know creative ways of expressing people's contributions and lives uh, in the LGBT movement, specifically the trans community. Because you know, sure, you tune into E Network, and I think that Miss uh, Major had mentioned something about this um, in the beginning. Of the trailer, but you you know we've got faces now on major media networks like Caitlyn Jenner, you know, talking about trans issues. But I feel like the core of uh, you know, the problems that the trans community is facing is not really being talked about. I, I, you know, let's just go back and and talk about Stonewall and how that's controversial, in which they've left out so many leaders, including Miss Major, in in that you know it's supposed to be a movie, Stonewall the movie. Um, kind of what are your thoughts around, you know, while working on this project of how it's it's different and how it could create or change dialogue? Right. Well, I think the story of Stonewall and the way it's been retold over the decades is really emblematic of how the folks who have the most resources are the ones who get to determine the history. And so if you think about the huge numbers of trans women of color who we lost to HIV AIDS in the 80s and in the 90s, and how few folks who were in Stonewall on that night in 1969 are here today to actually tell the story of the, of the uprising, you really see the way that healthcare access and disproportionate rates of incarceration, murder, suicide, HIV seroconversion have devastated certain communities and, um, and how trans women of color in particular have not been listened to, have been systematically disenfranchised, not just by sort of cisgender mainstream, but by mainstream gay movements as well. Uh, and so Ms. Major talks in the film about how the Stonewall was a place where girls like her congregated. Mm-hmm. It was young, you know, trans and gender nonconforming uh, folks of color, marginally housed uh, youth. Uh, Stonewall often stayed open after hours so that folks who didn't have a real safe place to go home would call that bar their home. Um, and the ways that the uh, the uprising was started by Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, Stormbird Lavery, these folks that were really, um, you know, people of color, gender nonconforming, and trans folks who'd had enough of the police brutality and the police harassment. And it was white cisgender gay men who sort of grabbed on to the incredible momentum of the uprising um, and were definitely out in numbers the second and third night. Um, but I don't know if you've seen this kind of beautiful meme of um, what's being called Danny the Twink <laughs> being inserted <laughs> in various like um, you know social justice moments. Um, it, it's ludicrous to want to tell that story today in a way that um, doesn't absolutely centralize the 
experience and involvement of trans women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michelle Miao on the phone with us is Annalise Ophelian. She's the director of Major, a biographical documentary focusing on the life of Miss Major Griffin Gracie, or better known as just Miss Major, a trans activist and community leader, and uh, what a lot of, of, of people in our community call Mama. Um, you know, Annalise, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, just be real and have this conversation in which I think the, the documentary will draw for us. And uh, it's this uh, conversation, you know, and, and, and Miss Major being open about her work that focuses ma- uh, mainly on trans women, trans women of color and, you know, sex workers and, you know, all of the, the, the parts of our community that's not being talked about in mainstream media or even, uh, right, LGB. Um, campaigns or <laughs> or media, um, you know what? Are, what is something that you you want viewers to pull out of this documentary and focusing on the life of Miss Major? Well, you know, one of the things that's the most compelling and the most moving, I think, about Miss Major's life and her story is that it is not one of individual exceptionalism. In the United States and in the West, I think we really love a story of, like, the one person who sort of bootstraps themselves up and then does something amazing. Mm-hmm. And Miss Major's story is really one of collective liberation and of love, unconditional love, creating family of choice where blood family may have caused harm or abandoned folks. And of how caring for one another can be a revolutionary act. So Ms. Major is the sort of person whose story is told throughout this film. And there are a couple of dozen community members, mostly trans women of color, who are there sort of sharing their own experiences um, of being community with Major, the ways that she inspired or helped shape them uh, into the leaders that they are today, the ways that they now reach back and help girls up along. Um, this sort of multi-generational, across-the-country influence that she's had on, on women who seek her out from all over the place. Janetta Johnson, um, who is actually stepping into the executive director role at TGIJP, Ms. Major is retiring um, mm-hmm. after many, many decades of, of service to community. If anyone deserves a, a wonderful, restful retirement, it's Ms. Major, right? Yeah. Um, but Janetta Johnson talks about the ways that she, you know, traveled across the country because she knew she'd heard about this woman, Miss Major. Um, Janetta's on our community advisory board, and um, one of the pieces of feedback she gave us very early in reviewing um, Rough Cuts was that she hoped this film would be available for girls like her in maybe geographically um, isolated areas so that they would know that someone like Major existed and they would know about the kinds of resources, the, the things that they were capable of. Um, we're really not making this film as much for sort of mainstream audiences mm-hmm. as we are for the women who will see their experiences reflected on the screen. Oh, that is so, so special. Annalise, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd love to continue our discussion about your film and, as, uh, of course, about Miss Major. So stay with us. Thank you. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The inspirational street requiem mourns the innocents who've died on the street, but also offers hope for the future to those who are struggling. Street Requiem premieres in California on Saturday, August 29, 7 p.m. at Old First Presbyterian Church in San Francisco, and on Sunday, August 30, 2 p.m. at the Congregational Church of San Mateo. Tickets from only $15 are available at streetrequiem.blogspot.com. Streetrequiem.blogspot.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. On the phone with us is Annalise Ophelian. She's the director of Major, a biographical documentary focusing on the life of Miss Major Griffin Gracie, uh, a huge contributor to our movement, especially the trans community and uh, trans women of color. Um, Annalise, I wanted to bring this up because I know the film focuses on the prison industrial complex. And I mean, a lot of that is actually, uh, you know, part of uh, Miss Major's work and that, you know, the systemic targeting of trans people, especially women of color uh, and and those with low income levels um, in placing them or incarcerating them. How do you explore that in this film, seeing that it's, uh, you know, such a huge part of Miss Major's work? Certainly. We know we worked very collaboratively with Ms. Major in terms of how the narrative structure of the film would be presented. And one of the things Major said early on was that she wanted the, the film to start with the work today. She wanted it to start with the girls who were locked up. And so the film really begins with an exploration of the work that TGI Justice does. And... Um, you know, I think about uh, you know, sort of Angela Davis and the way that she has been speaking around the country about Miss Major and the work that TGIJP does as a real uh, lens through which we can examine the problems with the prison industrial complex um, in general. That there's a microcosm in the tremendous human rights abuses facing trans women of color who are locked up 
facing trans women who are locked up um, that really shines a light on the inhumanity of the American prison system and the need for abolition. And so we hear from TGIJP members, we hear from Alex Lee, the founder of the organization, we hear from Jeanetta Johnson, we hear from Angela Davis, uh, and from this major, all talking about the work that TGIJP does. One of the really powerful things about majors' involvement with the organization was that very early on, as one of the very few, if not only at the time, leaders, executive directors of an organization that actually reflected the membership of the organization, right? Like a black trans ED is a really revolutionary mm-hmm. thing. Um, that she really is a people over policy kind of person and that her work was about making sure that the individuals who were locked up were getting the community support and connection that they needed, that they weren't feeling thrown away or that they were invisible once they went inside, that there was a whole community and network of folks on the outside who had their back. So it's, it's really profound work and we really do um, have the opportunity to just shine a bit of a light on the deep, deep structural problems with the prison industrial complex and the, the sort of for-profit motives increasingly happening with the way incarceration works in the United States. And there's a direct uh, correlation with, you know, uh, trans women who are being targeted by law enforcement. Um, and like you mentioned earlier, you know, you could or, or a discussion we actually had with Transgender Law Center. I mean, tra- trans women can be walking down the street and, uh, you know, law enforcement will mistaken or automatically assume that the person's a sex worker and whatnot. And, and then, you know, the, the cycle thus continues in, in terms of the targeting um, in which these are, again, like some hard issues or uh, topics that we actually must discuss. And when I think about uh, Ms. Major and the activism uh, and her work, um, I think about how are we going to get this, this, uh, you know, this conversation to a higher level where we can actually do something. So to me, you mentioned earlier, you know, this is made for for the small the smaller community, not so much mainstream, but at the same time, you have support of like someone like Janet Mock, who's on your advi- advisory board. Mm. Um, you know, are uh, there plans to at least try to get it on? Uh, you know, to to a big distribution list. Absolutely. I mean, we have a community engagement strategy that is very ambitious, and we have every intention of bringing the film to as wide an audience as possible. We felt that it was important in the structuring of the film that we use Ms. Major as our kind of primary guide, and our community advisory board, which is all trans folks of color who've been there supporting, particularly me as a white cisgender director, making sure that I'm being accountable to community uh, and that my own sort of you know biases and my own lenses are being checked at every point in the kind of production and post-production are there to, to make sure that the film uh, is authentic and accurate and truth-telling and reaches as wide an audience as possible while it's seeking to really speak to the folks whose uh, story is shown on screen. So we're hoping for screenings around the United States in partnership with community-based organizations um, where community can really be invited to the table to come and watch the story, connect with resources in their community, uh, and feel really kind of galvanized and excited about what they're seeing. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I mean, I I get very, very emotional because it's like, at my, you know, I get to live this time where someone like Miss Major is still with us, and uh, I could, you know, uh, maybe one day, hopefully, in my dreams, I'll be able to uh, meet Miss Major personally, um... It, 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 after wrapping up this film, and I think you guys are in post-production, but uh, mm. 
you know, I wonder if you had gotten the thoughts of Miss Major after doing so much work over the decades and kind of like, you know, what, where's her headspace as far as the movement goes? Like, where is she today? Is she happy with the progress or are we angry that, you know, more needs to be done? Well, you know, I'd really leave that question to Major to answer for herself. And yeah. one of the things I will say is that Ms. Major is one of the most accessible, approachable, humble women that I have ever known in my life. And I think often folks are a little, like, intimidated by her tremendous icon status. <laughs> but my experience of getting to be extremely close with her over the last couple of years is that she is um, just an incredibly energetically generous and available person, so you should certainly mm-hmm. have her as a guest on your show and and ask her that question. Oh. Uh, she is very much still in the fight. Um, she is, you know, gives interviews and gives keynote speeches and and talks with folks at every level of the work um, constantly. Mm-hmm. The fact that she's uh, retiring from her ED position at TGIJP in no way means that she's stepping down from her sort of, you know, national platform, really advocating and insisting that the powers that be be responsive to the needs mm-hmm. of her community. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and she's just, she's a really, she's a, she's a tremendous human being, and I feel incredibly fortunate to have had the opportunity to work so closely with her over the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, and and you're right. She's you know an iconic status, and of course, people like uh, Laverne Cox. You know, when they're out there in the media, they absolutely credit Miss Major uh, for the work that she's done, and so <laughs> you know that elevates it even more. Um, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned earlier as a uh, you know white cisgender uh, woman who is a director of this film. Uh, I know that there's a lot of dialogue also around racial issues and racial injustice, especially in our community. Um, what do you, you know, in your thoughts in, in this film and working in it and uh, the, that discussion within our community, do you think that this, this film can also impact, you know, kind of uh, the, the controversy that's been affecting our community? Well, I think there is an incredible need to center the stories, the narratives, the experiences of um, LGBT folks of color and gender-loving folks of color, um, and that that is really central to our kind of broader liberation, right? So I think that, and it's, you know, it, this, is, this is challenging and problematic. Ms. Major and I have known each other for many years. I worked with her on a film called Diagnosing Difference. Um, my partner, who's also our um, producer and um, and our co-producer and editor on the film, uh, started working as the administrative director of TGIJP. I started spending a bunch of time in the office visiting him and hanging out with Ms. Major, and she asked me to do this film. Um, and I said yes, and then immediately thought, oh, <laughs> I don't know that I am entirely the right person to do this film, and started a real process of making sure that there was a lot of community hands on the mm-hmm. production. Um, I think that we are in an incredibly powerful moment right now, and so I'll speak for myself as a white person and maybe speak to white folks in your audience, that there's this um, real moment we're being called upon um, to examine and undo the systems of white supremacy, the systems of racism that are so deeply entrenched in this country, uh, and that... There is no, uh, there is no casual whitewashing of this history. You know, Ms. Major reminds us that we didn't start out as queer folks fighting for marriage equality. We started out fighting against police brutality and fighting against being incarcerated in huge numbers. And those issues are still present today. Those haven't changed. We haven't won that battle for equality yet. 
Oh, uh, thank you so much, Annalise, for that. So uh, we're ending the show now, and uh, the big major question, the cliffhanger question everybody is waiting for is, when can we anticipate to see the film? You know, I, I myself am on pins and needles about this question. We are hard at work in the final stages of post-production. We are, as we speak, working on a potential premiere date for fall 2015, just a couple, three short months away here in San Francisco, where I'm talking to you from. Uh, you can look, uh, follow us on social media, at the Major Doc on Twitter, or uh, Miss Major Film, Facebook.com slash Miss Major Film, or on our website, MissMajorFilm.com, for updates about when the premiere will happen and about how you can bring the film to your Annalise, thank you so much for joining us here on the program and sharing the film with us before it's even, you know, out there. And uh, we definitely look forward to seeing the film. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening. You can catch the Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network.